Amen and amen. And it's good to be in God's house declaring those truths with one another in agreement with one another. I hope you have a copy of God's word with you. And if you do, open with me to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6, verse 45. As you're turning there, most of you, if not all of you here today, have some type of awareness of what's brewing in the Gulf at this very moment. Sharknado 2020. Right now there's a huge weather system happening. And it's as if it's this reminder in some sick and twisted way that the year 2020 continues to epitomize the saying, hold my drink and watch this. That's what it is. We've had corona all year long. You who haven't had corona, you have it too. You've tested positive and don't know it. Today, some of you are on the cusp of legitimately believing, being convinced that you may actually experience a Sharknado over the next 7 to 10 days. And you, you parents at home, you don't know what to do. If a hurricane hits, do we still have school because we're at home on the virtual reality? What on earth do we do? And as if that ain't enough, reminder, newsflash, we ain't even got to the election yet, church. Yeah, those were kind of more, oh, mixed with the laughter. We know too often how news outlets and medias operate, though, when things happen, right? If there's any type of headline that involves any potential of death, of drugs, of sex, they're latching onto it. It's really a media frenzy where they latch on and just competition to see who can communicate the quickest and put society into the most frenzies of panic and fear. Not all, but many. We know how that operates. And I've got to tell you before we get going in God's word this morning, one of these media outlets takes home the prize. I don't know who it is actually, but whoever thought about latching onto whatever a Fujiwara is, showing that there's a potential for two hurricanes to start orbiting one another and then collide as this superstorm. Wow, bravo to that media outlet. We know the media thrives. They thrive by latching on to the ever-changing situations of life around us with the hope of fabricating some type of fear. And I say fabricating very intentional. A fabrication is an invention, a lie, a falsification with the hope of inciting you to some type of behavior that is ultimately not appropriate. And we know that's a tragedy. And, and equally, on this side of things as well, I also recognize it's, it's not completely a humorous thing talking about devastating natural disasters. I, I realize uh, firsthand, we've got regional P, uh, PTSD right here in Katy, Texas. Tax day flood, shortly followed by Hurricane Harvey, where dozens of dozens upon families just from our membership mucked out one another's homes days, weeks, months, years. I know there's tragedy in that. There's tragedy. you just thinking back on that. And, and you, you might not be thinking, oh, there's going to be sharks flying and cyclones in the air. But you do realize and you think, if another hurricane like Harvey came this next week, I don't know how 
I could get through it again. So I know there's these both tragic ends of the spectrum between the the perversion and abuse of media outlets and then the, the tragic reality of potential devastation and loss of property, even loss of life. As we go to God's word this morning, there is something far more greater tragic than any of these two options I've just described. What's far more tragic than a media outlet trying to incite a fabricated frenzy of fear and panic, and also something far greater than even you going through something unimaginable that could damage your property, that could damage you physically, even the potential of you losing your very life. Something far greater in tragedy is the potential of you as a follower of Jesus Allowing the fabrication of reality around you to guide you in living your life out in a way that is contrary to the words of life here. Follower of Jesus is someone who has Jesus as personal Lord and Savior. You have ongoing transformation. You have biblical, authentic biblical community. You're not called to fear. We're called to faith. You're not called to confusion. You're called to confession. You're not called to wonder worrisome all around because I'm just a worrier no you're called to worship and Mark 6 shows us that reality here in this narrative this reminder of what happened with the 12 disciples the second time encountering some opposing winds and weather elements we're reminded of a strength that is provided for the storm and it's not a strength that is contingent upon various situations of life but it is a strength that is only and always secured, available 24-7 through Jesus as personal Lord and Savior. So we go to Mark chapter 6, and we begin walking through this narrative, looking at the strength for the storm secured in the Savior. And this is what the first couple of verses talk about here, verses 45 and 6. Immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. After Jesus had taken leave of the crowd, he went up on the mountain to pray. So if you remember the context here, Jesus just finished operating miraculous wonders through the 12 disciples. There were nearly 20, maybe 25,000 people in total broken out in groups of 50s and 100s on the green grass there. And the disciples carried bread and carried fish to these crowds. Remember the holy men, they, they, they jacked this little boy's lunch. This boy had five loaves and two fish. Not five loaves of Mrs. Baird's extra thin. It was five biscuits. And then two fish, not being two trophy-sized groupers either. Likely two pieces of fish that had been pickled. Enough for one boy's lunch. And these holy men, all the name of Jesus, jacked his lunch, brought it back to Jesus. He gives thanks to God the Father because he's the ultimate provider. And they carry, physically carry, these loaves and this fish to the multitudes. And their bellies are filled. Scripture uses the phraseology, they gorge themselves like an animal at the feeding trough. They're absolutely stuffed. And apparently, there's, at this point, some reluctance for the disciples to leave. 
Jesus has an agenda, has a mission for them, and they're caught up in the excitement. Maybe they enjoy what's going on and sharing some stories and being part of this miracle. And it says that Jesus made the disciples leave. He had to give them this command, this direct instruction. It's time for you to go. I'll handle the finishing time with the crowd. So the disciples went. They got into the boat. Remember, the boat is not a ship. The boat is an oversized canoe. You can go to Israel today and see what they believe is the Jesus boat. I doubt it is the Jesus boat, but you can pay for a piece of wood from it if you want. And they go before him to Bethsaida, the the house of fish is what it literally means. And Jesus handles the crowd. He, He dismisses them and it says, when Jesus finally got alone, as the disciples were already ahead, he goes to the hilltops, he goes to the surrounding mountains for an opportunity of prayer. Here in the Gospel of Mark, it doesn't give much indication why he goes to pray. You can go to the Gospel of John and other accounts and see some reasoning behind it. One of these was this. It was based on Jesus' mission. Jesus' mission was to fulfill himself as king of the Jews, yes, but not for a revolution, but ultimately to hang through crucifixion. What Jesus realized, though, with the crowds, they were ready to intentionally, even forcefully, to crown him king of revolution. So he sent the crowd away, and he goes to the mountain to pray. And he knows there's not a revolution coming in the near future, but a crucifixion. So he goes to the Father in that that community he's so used to, that has been so perfectly established in eternity past. And he communes with the Father, and he draws strength in prayer, even as the Son of God, communing with God the Father, getting strength for the mission. And it's not hard to imagine, as he's there on the mountaintop, as we see in the narrative, he's mindful of his followers. Other accounts indicate he is also mediating on behalf of his followers, praying that God the Father would also provide them supernatural strength for the mission they have ahead of themselves. So Jesus is on the mountain and he prays. Verse 47, the narrative continues. When evening came... The boat was out on the sea, and Jesus was alone on the land. And Jesus saw the disciples were making headway painfully. So here's the setting. It's evening time. It's the first watch of the evening. Evening begins at 6 p.m. So anywhere from 6 to 9 p.m. is the setting here. And Jesus is looking out from his, his prayer closet of a mountaintop, and he sees his disciples. They're struggling. The ESV translation says, They were making headway painfully. Don't misunderstand that, though. That may make it seem like they're making some type of progress. In fact, they find themselves three to four miles off course. The literal Greek is saying the wind is beating the disciples at their rowing. So if you were to look at these men on their oversized canoe, rowing and sweating and toiling, the elements were winning. They were losing. But it says here, in this evening from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m., Jesus, the Son of God, saw them. They did not go unnoticed. They weren't too far away to be covered up. Even if it was dark outside, now it was the first watch of the evening, so lightly there was still some natural light, anywhere from 6 to 9 p.m. Even if it was so dark to conceal the natural visibility, 
whether supernatural visibility or natural visibility, Jesus, the Son of God, saw his disciples. And they were struggling. They were straining at the oars, going against the elements. And he saw them struggling as they were in a position in which they committed themselves to obedience. They were on the water because that's where Jesus told them to go. They were rowing ahead to Bethsaida without him physically with them in the oversized canoe because that's what he instructed them to do. And they're in the smack middle of their obedience to the one in whom all things were made by and for him. They were experiencing difficulties and struggles. Kind of counter to prosperity gospel, isn't it? I mean, if you, if you can't catch a, a smooth ride across the Sea of Galilee when Jesus is physically on earth, don't expect it today, church. But think about the encouragement there. You ever find yourself in obedience to Jesus only to find this situation more sticky than it would have been elsewhere? Think about the alternative these men had. They could have been reluctant to the point where they stayed with the crowds. They could have found a place to stay with them. It would have been a lot more cozy, more convenient. A place where they could have had breakfast the next morning, perhaps. A place where they could have continued to be the, the featured attraction and sharing stories upon stories of their walking with Jesus. But instead, they were three to four miles off course in the Sea of Galilee at nighttime, and the wind was kicking their backside. But Jesus saw them. For you as a follower today, whatever area of obedience you have stepped out in faith because you know it is backed by the word of God and the spirit of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, the third person is leading you in this direction or this different avenue of your life. He sees you in that obedience, especially when it gets difficult. So he sees them. And then verse 48 finishes by saying, by describing what Jesus actually begins doing. And seeing them and making no headway, seeing them losing against the elements, about the fourth watch of the night, Jesus came to them physically. Six to nine in the evening is the first watch. Second watch is nine to midnight. Third watch is midnight to three. Then 0300 to 0600 hours is the, the, th the window there of the fourth watch of the night. Pitch black outside. And Jesus, after seeing his disciples encounter difficulty as a result of their committed obedience to him, he physically comes to them. But look at what the end of verse 48 says. Walking on the sea, his desire was to pass them by. Don't fall into the pitfall here. Don't, don't try to interpret this in a way that lines up with what you think Jesus should be thinking or what Jesus should have planned during this time. The plain, simply stated scripture is accurately in line with the original Greek manuscripts here. Jesus saw them struggling in the center of their committed obedience. As a result, at the fourth watch of the night, he physically comes to them walking on the water. We should just stop there. I can't even imagine. Walking on the water. But his plan was not to stop in and hop on the boat with them. 
His plan was kind of like we tell our kiddos, right? Daddy, I want to go to McDonald's. Oh, honey, we'll go by McDonald's. We'll go right by McDonald's on the way to home and you'll get your sandwich for lunch. Jesus' heartbeat was, my plan is to pass by these followers who are in the oversized canoe in the middle of their committed obedience to me, although I know and I've seen them struggling. Trust me, I've checked it out. It does not mean Jesus intended to come alongside them in the boat. Jesus' intent was to walk on the water close enough where they saw him and to keep going to the other side where he had instructed them originally to meet him. So obviously we ask, well, what the heck was he thinking? What is going on? He must have some, some powerful purpose here, as he always does. This phrase here, you can circle it if you'd like, he meant to pass them by. It's something that's all throughout Scripture with great divine purpose. In the Old Testament, the Septuagint version of the Old Testament, which is the, the Greek version of the Old Testament, this phrase found in Mark 6 is <clears throat> matched, excuse me, matched up with a couple other key phrases and, and passages in the Old Testament. Exodus 34 being one of them. Exodus 34 is where God and Moses are there on Mount Sinai having a conversation. See, at this point, Moses had already broken the first set of tablets, the first set of Ten Commandments. Oh my goodness. Like, when has God ever given Ten Commandments written on two tablets, and is he just going to do it again automatically? Well, we see his grace, and he does it. Go with me to Exodus chapter 34. I want to read for you verses 1 to 7. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone. Like the first, I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. I love how God remembers to put that back in there. You broke them, Moses. Be ready by the morning. Come up the morning in Mount Sinai. Present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. Verse 3. No one shall come up with you. Let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first. He rose early in the morning, went up on Mount Sinai, as the Lord had commanded him. He took in his hand two tablets of stone. Verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there. Proclaim the name of the Lord. And look at verse 6. The Lord passed before him. Remember Mark 6? It was Jesus' desire. What he wanted to do was pass by his disciples. That they might see him. But here what we have in the Old Testament perspective is what God actually shares and proclaims to Moses and what should have been evident to the disciples. Look, verse 6, Exodus 34. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed this truth. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and faithfulness. Sounds like that song we opened up with this morning. He was faithful then. I am sure he will be faithful now. Keeping steadfast love for thousands upon thousands of generations. Mark 6 says, Jesus walked on water, came to them, but he wanted to pass by. What's demonstrated in this passing by, what should have been evident to these disciples that Jesus physically passing by would have demonstrated to them a reminder of his steadfast love, 
a reminder of his never-ending grace, a reminder of his abundant mercy, a reminder of his faithfulness that always has been there and will always exist in all eternity. Just him passing by should have been enough for them. But we see it obviously was not. We see a pretty humorous response by a bunch of grown men in an oversized canoe. Verse 49 shows this response in 50. When they saw him, these menly men, walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost, a phantom, an apparition. They cried out. Translation, group of junior high girls at a horror movie, screeching. Is that not politically correct? I can't say that anymore. Sorry, girls. For they all saw him and were terrified. Translation, loincloths were needed to be changed as a result of them seeing what they thought was a phantom walking over the water. That's what it says here. I'm not making this up, okay? Think about this. So I looked into a few of these words. Ghost being phantasma, like a phantom. You can go to Disney World, get some perspective here that translates really good. At Disney World, they have this evening show at nighttime, Mickey's Fantasmic. Anybody been there? Come on, okay. I think they're doing away with it pretty soon. I don't know. That's how Jennifer persuaded me to go last time. But all it's about is the power of imagination. All it's about is Mickey encountering these night terrors, these dreams, based on the power of his imagination, ultimately overcoming them through positive imagination. But there he encounters this evil, this dark power of imagination. And let me tell you how this translates to the Word of God, because if I'm talking Disney, I better get back to the Word of God quick. I hear you. Imagination. Phantasma, phantom, apparition, ghost. What they thought they saw, their interpretation of the reality unfolding around them was completely false. It wasn't real. Transfer that to fear. Fear is not a real thing. We project things on ourselves so much to an extent based on our emotions and feelings that we respond as if some things are real. I'm just full of a bunch of secular references this week, guys. This is what I got out of Shark Week a couple weeks ago, okay? Will Smith said this, fear is not real. The only place fear exists is in your imagination. It's a product of your imagination. Then causing us to worry about things that do not currently exist and worry about things that may never exist at all. Fear is not real, but it's allowing the perceived emotions and feelings of what we think we see unfolding around us to then so darkly and negatively impact our responses that we look like complete fools opposite of what we should be epitomizing as followers of Jesus Christ. Case in point, these 12 menly men having to change their clothes because they thought they saw a ghost 
coming up to them when it was Jesus Christ, the man they've been following the last two years. Fear is a fabrication, an invention, a lie from the pit of hell. And if fear is the fabrication, faith's got to be the foundation. And that's what Jesus solidifies here. Jesus had a heart to pass by him. It didn't work out based on the response. So in his grace, the grace that should have been received from him simply passing by, the strength enough for the mission at hand, their response was not ready for that. So he then comes to them. It says, he came, he intended to walk by them. They cried out in terror, holy terror, I guess you could say. And then he immediately, in verse 50, speaks to them and says truth. He immediately speaks truth into their struggling situation. He says these three things. Have courage. A phrase mentioned eight times in the New Testament alone. Seven times in the gospel accounts. One time in the book of Acts to the apostle Paul. All eight times you know who says have courage? Jesus. Jesus is the only one who says this phrase because he's the only source of a bold, reliable, confident courage that we can carry out in our lives. It says, have courage. And then he says, ego amy in the Greek. Exact same phrase used to describe I am in the Old Testament to Moses. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Jesus says, have courage. I am. It's me, guys. It's God. It's the Son of God. It's me, Jesus. Have courage. I am. Do not be afraid. That third phrase used more than a hundred times all throughout Scripture. Jesus here immediately speaking truth into their struggling situation, although he had every right just to keep on going, even though they did not realize the significance of his gracious, merciful passing by. He speaks truth into the situation. Have courage, I am. Don't be afraid. And the narrative concludes with Jesus getting into the boat with them. The wind is instantly abated, and they were extremely, exceedingly astounded. They've been amazed before. I mean, were they not amazed at the loaves and fishes miracle? Surely they were. I mean, they were carrying, they stole the lunch, and then they were carrying the lunch to all these crowds. They knew that it should have run out so quick into the process. Surely they were in awe to some extent to what they saw just so previous at the feeding of the 5,000. But here, the astonishment is next level. Here, it for once grips them to the core like never before, where Scripture uses these extra um, adjectives saying they are extremely, exceedingly astounded to the point where their hearts are no longer hard, as verse 52 says they were at the feeding of the loaves and the fish. They did not understand about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. But here for the first time, these followers of Jesus, they came to a place where they understood the greatness of who he was. Here where they used to have fear, they have now faith. Here where they used to be confused, they now have confession with one another. 
here where they used to worry so much and wander around aimlessly, they are worshiping Jesus. I mean, even Peter doesn't say anything at this point, right? That's a miracle. We looked at Exodus 34 where Moses had those tablets. He had those tablets in hand or propped up and God passes by. And it's God's passing by that gives him the hope, the assurance. And then we see here where they totally missed it. But check out the setup that Jesus went to to putting these things in place. Jesus fed the 5,000 men, the 20,000 people. And at the end of that, in their bellies being full, they had 12 baskets left over. And so where Moses in the Old Testament had these tablets in hand and experienced the passing by of the Lord, a reminder that the God who is always faithful will always be faithful. These men in that oversized canoe, they had those baskets in hand, which should have been reminder enough that his faithfulness in the past will always mean faithfulness in the future. But they missed it. They missed the strength that he intended for them to have for the mission to the point where he couldn't just pass by, but he had to get in the boat and speak this truth. Have courage. I am. Do not be afraid. And for the first time, they got it. What I want to encourage you with this morning, church, we don't have the Ten Commandments in hand other than in Scripture. We don't have 12 baskets of leftovers hanging around. But look around this building. We've got the gathering of God's people. In Sharknado 2020, we are in person. And I don't see bodies dropping to death, okay? God is providing. Because we are being committed to what we're designed for. We are being committed and obedient to what he's calling us to do. Gather as the bride of Christ. And being about his glory, pushing back the darkness to the ends of the earth. What we do know is right there in the middle of obedience, it's going to be tough. It's going to be sticky. But that discomfort should be encouraging to us. Reminding us we are right where we need to be. So I don't know where you are this morning. But my prayer is that you find strength for the mission God is calling you to based on the security of Him as your Savior, not whatever situation might befall you this afternoon or next week or next month. He's not looking for you to shrill in terror. He's looking for you to surrender and trust on Him as Lord and Savior. Would you consider that? today as we continue to worship. Let's stand together. I want to pray over us, church. We have the opportunity to worship with two more songs. Consider the strength God's providing for our mission. And we all, in some capacity, have an opportunity to respond to Jesus.